0: Pepperidge Farm, Milano.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues, like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.
2: Happy Saturday, everybody, and welcome to 2018's Last Saturday Classic. After the new year, we have an episode coming out that is going to reference Catherine de' Medici. And back in 2010, previous hosts, Sarah and Katie, did what they called a super series. It was a multi-part series that played out over several weeks and it touched on multiple members of the Medici family and the world that they lived in. Two of the installments were on Catherine de' Medici.
0: And since she is coming up again in early 2019, we are re-releasing those two episodes from the super series. One of the things that they talk about today is Catherine's marriage at the age of 14, including some of the more intimate details of that marriage.
2: If you're interested in hearing the other episodes that are referenced in today's show, we will have a link to all the Medici episodes, both from the Super Series and ones from later on, in the show notes for today's episode. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
3: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Doughty. And our Medici super series isn't all about Italy. In this episode, we're actually going to follow the most famous female member of the Medici clan on her journey to France, where this wealthy bourgeois family finally attains what it hasn't had, which is royal standing. But it's not
1: all happily ever after. You have probably heard of Catherine as a poisoner or an Italian spy, Uh, but we're saving that stuff, the Catholic Huguenot Wars, for later, and uh, Catherine's Triple Regency as well. For this one, we're going to go back
3: to her roots. And that's because apparently we're really fascinated by stories about sad royal children. I was thinking about all the episodes where we've talked about them, Cleopatra's brood, Herod's kids, Elizabeth I when she was just Lady Elizabeth with kind of an expendable head. So we're going to move on to Florence and start with a really sad childhood.
1: In our Michelangelo episode, we talked about a Medici pope, Pope Leo the Axe, as our friend Molly from (laughs) Stuff Mom Never Told You called him. And his various maneuvers in Florence uh, for power. He assumed the papal throne in 1513 and replaced his brother as nominal ruler of Florence with his nephew, a puppet, Lorenzo II de' Medici. And don't get him confused with Lorenzo the Magnificent because there's nothing like that about him. Yeah. And Leo arranges an advantageous match for this young man with Madeleine de la Tour d'Auvergne, who's a 16-year-old orphan and also a Bourbon heiress. It's a deal struck up between the Pope and the Italian territory Hungary, French king Francis I, which suits both of their schemes and is a nice little union of power.
3: And The Marriage is a Success, the couple conceives a child within months, And Caterina de' Medici is born on April thirteenth, 1519. But the sad thing is she's orphaned within weeks of her birth because Lorenzo II seems to have had a pretty bad case of syphilis. Francis
1: and Leo are, of course, disappointed that their plan hasn't come to fruition quite as they were hoping. Um, But once baby Catherine gets over an early illness, she's healthy and actually turns out to be a very valuable pawn to whoever possesses her. Pope Leo intends to control her himself and refuses to send her to Francis's court because basically she'd be a hostage there. Yeah,
3: Francis would be the one who could decide who to marry her to. And So when Leo receives baby Catherine in Rome, he says somewhat ominously, she comes bearing the calamities of the Greeks, but he also says she's a, a fine and fat little baby, so maybe things are going to come out okay. Leo puts his full power behind Catherine and makes her Duchess of Urbino. He plans to eventually marry her off to an illegitimate medici son and set them up as the the new puppet rulers of florence but unfortunately things aren't so simple and in 1521 leo dies and the new pope is adrian vi who's a reformist we talked about him in the michelangelo episode too he has little tolerance for all things medici and um it's not a good time for the family Adrian at first takes Catherine's
1: Duchy of Urbino and gives it back to its original owners, but even though the family is flailing a bit at this time, Catherine's doing okay. She's moved back to Florence uh, to live under her relative Cardinal Giulio's supervision, and you might remember him from our Pazzi Conspiracy podcast. He was the illegitimate son of the Giuliano who was murdered in the Duomo. But Adrian doesn't last long, anyways. He dies, possibly, uh, being poisoned, just two years after he comes into power.
3: And so Catherine's uncle, Cardinal Giulio, becomes Pope Clement the Seventh. And with the Medici back on top, back in power, Catherine becomes good marriage bait again. She's valuable again. And so Clement outfits her in style in the Medici Palace. You know, she's she's raised like a princess there. But As we mentioned also in the Michelangelo podcast, Florentines are not happy under this new form of Medici rule. Cardinal Giulio, now Pope Clement, isn't willing to give up his day job of micromanaging Florence. And the people in the city aren't happy under this Medici control. And
1: in 1526, when Catherine is just seven years old, Clement joins a sort of league with France, England, Florence, and Venice against the eventual Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. But things do not go well for the League of Cognac, and soon enough, imperial troops are sacking Rome. The Pope has to flee, hide, and melt down his papal tiaras to pay his own ransom. And As, of course, we learned in a previous podcast, while Rome is being sacked, the Florentines take the opportunity to try to restore the Republic. And with the help of the imperial army, they
3: overthrow the Medici. Yeah, down with the Medici. And so this is obviously scary times for Catherine de' Medici holed up in the Medici palace. And she's there with her guardian and mother figure, Clarice Strozzi, who the two of them are left to face this angry anti-Medici Florentine mob. And eventually they escape to a Medici country house, but an armed escort comes to collect Catherine and takes her off to the Santa Lucia convent, which is not a pro-Medici convent, but still probably a relatively safe place to be. And this Begins poor Catherine's three years of danger and shuffling about. And from Santa Lucia, she's moved to Santa Caterina of Siena, which is also in Florence. And it's a plague ridden convent, so, not the best place for a young girl to be living. The French ambassador insists
1: that she be taken out of it, and the Republic's council agreed for her to move to the convent of Santa Maria Annunziata delle Marate, which is a covert operation. They leave in the dead of night. Catherine is wearing several veils, and this is in 1527. Just to give you an idea of where we are in the timeline. Yeah, of people her life.
3: people sometimes ask for more dates and ages and <laughs> biographies. We're giving episodes. you dates. Um, but this convent is much nicer than the other two. It's set up to educate young aristocratic women and they also take in retired noble women and since the convent has been well supported by the medici they're very welcoming to catherine the abbess is even her godmother so it's comparatively nice she learns a lot from these educated aristocratic nuns and uh, picks up a lot of the things that make her eventually so successful in court you know her nice manners her beautiful bearing charm. And one of the nuns notes that she was so gentle and pleasant that the sisters did all they could to ease her sorrows and difficulties. So this is a, um, a a calmer time in her imprisonment, essentially. And in the meantime, Clement and
1: Charles are hammering out a piece, but new extremists in Florence fear that the Medici will come back into power, of course, if Clement and Charles are together on this. So they consider eliminating the main marriage pawn, who of course is little Catherine.
3: Precious to the papacy and the Medici. And in 1529, with imperial troops arriving in Florence, these new extremists meet them with a fierce defense. Um, This is when Michelangelo is setting up the, the fortification, designing fortifications and all that. And these extremists are very anti-11-year-old Catherine, and they have some terrible ideas about what to do with her. One plan is to lower her naked in a basket over the city walls where her imperial allies might accidentally kill her. Another is to ditch her in a military brothel so that she's not a very desirable marriage pawn anymore.
1: They don't accomplish any of these, but regardless, the plan is to take her out of the Marate convent. And The poor nuns have to give her up. Catherine thinks that the troops are coming to kill her, so she shaves her head and puts on a habit and yells, Holy Mother, I am yours. Let us now see what excommunicated wretch will dare to drag a spouse of Christ from her monastery. And she will not take her habit off.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of remarkable, though, that she's not harmed when she's taken from the convent. She's kept safe by her escort, who behaves quite honorably, but... She has to ride through the city of Florence in her habit on a donkey, and it's a scary, terrible ride. She can hear the anti-Medici people yelling at her on the street, Uh, but she's not harmed. She's dropped off at Santa Lucia Convent again, the place where she, she started this whole odyssey. And soon enough, Clement has Florence again, and Catherine is safe.
0: you're really going to enjoy, the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news.
0: Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all.
1: So Catherine is shipped off to Rome to live with her great-aunt, Lucrezia Salviata, who is uh, Lorenzo the Magnificent's daughter. And with the Medici back on top, it is time to make a marriage match perhaps one with France. So now we're going to take you over to another country.
3: In another sad childhood. <laughs> so Catherine's intended, Henry, is born two weeks before her, and his mother dies when he's five years old, but the worst childhood trauma comes a year later. And to understand that, we're
1: going to have to go a little bit back into his father's life. So his father. Francis was obsessed with Italian conquests as a young man, and this earned him the hostility of Charles I of Spain, who later became our old friend, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. And in 1525, Francis had a stupendous loss against the imperial troops in Pavia, Italy. He was overly brave on the field, his nobles were cut down around him, and he manages to get himself captured and taken to Barcelona,
3: Francis is treated well by Charles, but he gets depressed, you know, not being able to do the things he's used to doing as king of France. He stops eating, he gets sick, and Charles is terrified that this priceless captive he has, this bargaining chip, is going to die on him. And Francis, fortunately, starts to get a little better. The two monarchs start to work out the Treaty of Madrid in 1526. And this results in huge sacrifices of territory from Francis. It's a bad deal. It's a very bad deal. But, of course, he's not in a position to bargain here. He's held prisoner. Um, Also, it's going to result in a royal marriage. The widower, Francis, is going to marry Charles's widowed sister. But to be sure that Francis goes out and actually fulfills these territory handovers and, and keeps up his end of the deal, Charles is going to need a little collateral. And so they work out a deal where in Francis's stead, Charles will hold the Dauphin, Francois, and Henry, eight and six-year-old boys. Yeah, kids for collateral. That's, a,
1: that's- that's very nice. The boys are brought by their grandmother to the borderlands and the exchange takes place on a raft in a river, which is very strange. Yeah. It's like two rafts coming from two opposite boats sides. Coming out to the raft and and then there's the switching. switch. Um, And as a note, this will come up a bit later, one woman in the boys' departing group is 25-year-old Diane de Poitiers, who gives Henry a kiss, and later she becomes his mistress for the rest of his life.
3: And kind of the bane of Catherine de' Medici's existence. So Francis is really upset at the handoff. He's sad to be giving his sons up as prisoners. He promises them that he'll try to bring them home soon, but really he has no intention of fulfilling the terms of this treaty. So the likelihood that the boys are going to come home anytime soon is slim to none.
1: Their initial captivity is fine. They're staying with their future stepmother, Eleanor, and they have this large French household. But as Francis becomes more rebellious, you know, starting the League of Cognac, for instance, The kids are basically put on lockdown and moved deeper and deeper into Spain.
3: And just to compare this again to Catherine's childhood, since it is so interesting that this future couple is in captivity at the same time, this is around the same time that imperial forces are sacking Rome and Catherine's hiding in the convent. But by 1529, things have gotten worse for the prisoners, and a French spy is found near where they're being kept. So they're moved even deeper into Spain— to Pedraza, and the only member of their once enormous suite of tutors and maids and valets and friends that's left is a single French dwarf who's there to entertain them.
1: Ultimately, they're moved to a cell with 10-foot-thick walls, bars, and straw mattresses. They have no companions, no education, And no exercise. But in the meantime, the years of war have made France and Spain very ready for peace, even if their actual rulers are not. And the ladies have to be brought in to work it out since Francis and Charles can't seem to do it. So la Pex des dames with Francis's mom and Charles's aunt (laughs) secures the boys' release for quite a bit of money instead of territory. And Francis sets to raising it and getting his boys back.
3: And surprisingly, the boys are in pretty good shape considering the severity of their final time in prison. Henry's 11 now, the Dauphin is 12, but they're different kids. They're not these happy-go-lucky French princes that left. They're gloomy Spanish kids who have grown up in prison. And to make matters worse, their father doesn't even like them very much anymore. And he definitely favors his younger son, who's gotten to still have his happy French prince childhood. He says that, the mark of a Frenchman was to be always gay and lively, and he also says that he has no time for dreamy, sullen, sleepy children. I just want to be like, Francis, <laughs> they've been in prison for four and a half years. Give but them a break. Being a darnling. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but it's time to start looking for a bride for Henry, regardless of his uh, dreamy sullenness. A match with Mary Tudor falls through, so Francis goes to his friend Clement, the Pope, and enter Catherine in Henry's life.
3: And this is to be a triumphant marriage for for Clement and for Francis, who have both been pretty disgraced recently. This is their chance to show the world that they're back on top and they're making this great alliance.
2: The only way is through a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Join us as we hear from the world's greatest athletes, coaches, and trainers as they discuss how they utilize training, competition, recovery, and the latest innovations in fitness to improve their performance and push through their personal, physical, and mental challenges. Here is Canadian heptathlete, Georgia
1: Ellenward.
3: You can practice every day because you're working on things like you might slow something down or exaggerate another thing But when you're competing you're going as hard as you can for even that short amount of time It's a lot of intensity and it's a lot of physical power. It's a lot of mental power I think that's why it's so draining and to shift gears after every event like oh I just ran the hurdles now. I have to think about high jump How do I get as high up in the air as I can after I just tried to run as fast as I can? Giving that much intensity in such contrasting events can can be really be difficult.
2: Listen to the only way is through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: The marriage between these two prison raised kids is going to be pretty impressive too. Isabella Deste helps prepare Catherine just to get an idea of her trousseau. Isabella requires three pounds of gold, two pounds of silver, two pounds of silk. All of that is just for gowns. She also gets pearls, and these pearls turn out to be pretty notable because uh, Catherine gives them to her future daughter-in-law, Mary Stuart, who when she's beheaded, Elizabeth I ends up with them. Apparently that's, that's how you get pearls.
1: She also has a crystal casket, enormous diamonds, emeralds, rubies. Catherine is set as far as Trousseau go. And she starts her journey to Marseille in 1533. There are, of course, very elaborate marriage festivities that go on for days and days. But they're finally married by contract, October 27th, 1533. And they have their religious ceremony The next day, Catherine is dressed in gold brocade with a velvet corsage covered in gems and edged in ermine. She has jewels in her hair and a crown on her head. So quite the lovely bride.
3: And the Pope and Francis really want to make sure that these two 14-year-olds consummate their marriage. And consequently, they're really creepy about it. They might even stay in the room to make sure that everything happens as it should. Um, But... After that's done, everybody's free to go home, and they exchange some parting gifts. And um, one of the special gifts the Pope gives the king is a unicorn tusk, which Katie was really excited about. <laughs>
1: because it is, of course, actually a narwhal tusk, and anyone at Stuff Works in the editorial department, I think, knows how obsessed with them I am. I wrote an article,
3: if you want to go look for it, on our homepage. So Catherine's a duchess now. She's gone from this sort of derogatory term a merchant's daughter. She's clearly no merchant's daughter, but, you know, the Medicis have their, have their uh, reputations. But regardless, she is a duchess now, and it seems like things are going to be pretty great for her, except that the first major blow to her her married life comes less than a year after the wedding when clement dies and he hasn't fully paid her dowry and he hasn't fulfilled all his promises to king francis and so consequently francis feels like he's gotten a pretty bum deal with marrying his son to to catherine and he says that the girl has come to me stark naked
1: Another big problem is that Catherine can't seem to conceive, and this is a major issue when Henry's brother, the Dauphin, dies apparently after an exhausting game of tennis. Which is
3: an embarrassing way to go. It
1: really is. 17-year-old Henry has a daughter by an Italian woman, so it seems that the problem isn't him, and he's urged to repudiate Catherine. But Francis likes her a lot. She's smart. She's sporting. She may have brought side saddle to France, in fact. And she can handle his body jokes. She's a good match for him. And so he becomes her
3: ally. Yeah, her father-in-law. So Catherine steps up her attempts to conceive a notch. And she gets these weird medicines, tries all sorts of strange potions out, and um she watches Henry and his mistress, Dionne, through a hole drilled in the floor to see what they're doing, maybe find out if she's doing something wrong, although apparently she's so sad watching this that the tears blur her vision. Eventually, the couple gets a medical examination, which shows that both of them are slightly abnormal, which... We have to wonder what that means. not been
1: detailed. We're not sure.
3: But regardless, they're given some instruction. It seems to work because she's soon pregnant and she has a boy, Francis, followed by nine more children. So whatever they learn certainly works for them. And an
1: important note for our next episode, Catherine is a two-parter. The survivors, except for one, are sickly children. They've got weak lungs. The boys have sores and fits of dementia that – may have been from congenital syphilis, so file that one away. But while marriage isn't easy, neither is jousting, and at 28, Henry and Catherine become king and queen of France when Francis dies. Catherine sincerely mourned the old king. He taught her a lot about regal style and helped inspire her love of architecture and art. And for the next decade or so, she absorbed herself in her family life, although she had to contend with a very pushy third party in her marriage, Dionne de Poitiers.
3: But the king grows to respect his wife more and more, to pay more attention to her, probably because he is grateful she's borne him so many children. Um, And he starts to trust her, too. He gives her the regency several times when he's away on campaigns. Um, But still, her role is mostly being... A mother and being a lady of the court. By the time she's 40, life seems to be going fairly well. After all these years of expensive wars with um, France and Spain over Italy, there's going to be peace finally, and it's going to be marked by two royal marriages. And to celebrate, Henry is going to host festivities. He, his sons, and his court will joust despite Catherine's fears and her. Foreboding sense of doom. And she thinks she has a second sight, so this is a big deal.
1: Her astrologers have warned her that there's going to be trouble, and Nostradamus has predicted disaster. She's dreamt of blood and gore. There is no good that will come out of this particular jousting tournament.
3: And so on Friday, June 30th, 1559, after several successful runs, Henry II is struck down with a lance through the eye and brain. It takes him 10 agonizing days to die, and he leaves his 15 year old son, Francis, who is weak in mind and body, as King of France. And the grieving widow, Catherine, turns out to be willing to do anything to protect her children's birthright. But that's going to be the subject for our next episode. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
2: Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Homan, Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350 yard drive considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grind in and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow, get a grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now.
1: The richest, most powerful place on Earth. A fiction podcast.
3: Tuman Bay. Bay.
1: On an epic scale. Power is
3: everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay.
1: Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay!
3: Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.